0: This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Always was, always
1: with me. Always was, always with me. Tanse, hello, and welcome back to the Matriarch Movement podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm very excited and honored to have Caitlin Casper here with me today for another conversation, round two. She was on the show a couple weeks ago. And there, I was asking a lot of questions about what's currently happening in Canada between uh, Indigenous people and the findings of the unmarked graves, the mass graves, and taking Canada to international courts. Uh, through this conversation, I learned so much, but I also realized that I still have so many questions for Caitlin. And so we talk about Section 35, we talk about our rights as Indigenous people, we also talk about how to stay safe when dealing with police. We talk. About defunding the police. Uh, without further ado, Caitlin Casper. Hi, hi. I'm very excited for this conversation. I have Caitlin Casper here with me today for a round two series because we have we were so involved with the conversation last time that I just knew I had so many questions left to ask, as well as all of you. And so thank you, hi, hi to Caitlin for joining us for the second time.
0: Thank you for having me back.
1: <laughs> How have you been? It's been like a little, it's been a couple weeks, I think, since we last uh, chatted.
0: Well, actually, I have been working on a very interesting case that is relevant, I think, to a lot of the uh, questions and interested areas of subject for your viewers um, with respect to duty to consult and um, Section 35 rights, Aboriginal and mm-hmm. treaty rights. So I am primed and ready to answer <laughs> any and all questions.
1: Yeah, I have. Um, my followers are very... Very informed. Even some of the questions they sent in, I was like, I don't even know that answer. (laughs) Um, So I'm also interested in coming along this journey to learn from you as well today. I think you touched on a point already: is what is the difference between duty to consult and relationship building?
0: So it's actually very interesting because in our history as Indigenous people, since contact with the crown. Um, There has been a large portion of that history where our concerns have been ignored, where our uh, claims to what is in our treaty relationships uh, in terms of what our inherent rights are as being um, a First Nations people with all of our own types of government systems, our own types of law um, was overwhelmingly ignored uh, Mm -hmm. by the by the crown. And so part of the work um, that Indigenous people have done and that the generations before us and what we continue to do now is a lot of the grassroots activism um, Mm -hmm. that has meant to assert our rights and to make sure that uh, they're being recognized in law. And in 1982, uh, Section 35 of the Constitution Act um, affirms all existing, um, title and Aboriginal rights. Um, so they're now constitutional rights, um, Mm -hmm. in Canada. So we have, um, part of that is that when, uh, the crown is, uh, setting off on any type of venture where, um, uh, infringement of those rights or potential infringement of those rights, Um, so it can be either uh, land title or uh, rights to harvesting, fishing, economic activities, that kind of thing. Um, There is a requirement uh, for the government Uh, to engage on a process of uh, consulting with the First Nation whose rights uh, it will infringe. And so this duty to consult, interesting enough, is only the government, Uh, either the provincial or the federal government, can undergo um, this duty to consult. It can't be Uh, given to a third party like a private interest like a mining company or uh, a land developer um, you can't pass off the duty to consult and it that is kind of part and parcel with this idea of honor of the crown Mm -hmm. um whereby it was the crown um who initially um undertook negotiations, conversations with Indigenous people. And so therefore, that relationship needs to continue uh, through to this day. And so that, you know, and there is, I think, a lot to talk about in mm-hmm. that framework of treaty yeah. to consult and definitely differing opinions as to what the intent and purpose of it, as described by the Supreme Court of Canada, um, what the intent and purpose of it was supposed to be and what it actually looks like today, um, I think are two very different things uh, and certainly are implemented differently across Canada. Um, But it is very different than relationship building, which is um, positive action on behalf of the government to try and work with Indigenous uh, nations in many different areas, um, healthcare, education, Uh, settlement of uh, land claims and uh, Indigenous rights issues. Um, And it's supposed to be, you know, positivist action that's undertaken to keep um, dialogue flowing, to keep a good relationship ongoing uh, between Indigenous people and the Crown Mm -hmm. so that uh, we don't get to the point of severe breakdown Uh, Mm -hmm. where we've seen the consequences of severe breakdown when there is a serious lack of um, reconciliation, a lack Mm -hmm. of negotiation, conversation. We have things like the Oka crisis that happened, Ipperwash, um, certainly the Wet'suwet'en, like out uh, in British Columbia, um, and it is detrimental to ongoing relationships uh, for those types of events to occur. So that is part of that. If we do the work up front, then resolving issues down the line later on becomes uh, easier, or at least that's the thought
1: right well and i think like for some indigenous people we're unsure of what our rights really are because of the continued denial of them within law and within the federal institution and so um can you touch a little bit on you know your rights as an indigenous person does that differ if you are metis if you're status non-status um how does someone get to know a little bit more of the rights that they have as an indigenous person
0: So when we talk about um, Canada and the colonial state, we have rights underneath um, what they have said gives us rights, right? So this Mm -hmm. idea of Section 35 and affirming um, uh, land title and Aboriginal rights, and then we have what we know to be our inherent rights according Mm -hmm. to our systems of law. And so I trying to um, reconcile these two is actually a really interesting point of intersection right now in law, um, where the a lot of the rights that have come from, in Canadian law have come from the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and there is a lot of really great legal cases that many of you have probably heard about, starting uh, with uh, Calder, Uh, And then moving all the way through until today. Um, Mm. And I think part of that, as you know, in terms of why this all started uh, with Calder, uh, and I believe that was a case in the very early 1970s, 71 or 72, by the time it reached the Supreme Court of Canada. You have to also understand that we came from the Indian Act, where Mm -hmm. a provision of the Indian Act set out very clearly that it was against the law for Indigenous people to retain legal counsel, um, to pay uh, a lawyer to represent them in court. Um, All of those, that advocacy for Indigenous rights issues uh, was simply not allowed Mm -hmm. um, prior to 1951 when the Indian Act was changed and that provision was taken out. So within the course you know, of two decades, all of a sudden we had the Calder decision coming um, right up to the Supreme Court. And this set off on a path of increasing framing of what our rights are and what they look like, how they're determined, and where we're getting to right now is this beautiful point in law where... Um, indigenous law and how our customs and traditions describe our rights describe our relationship with the land Mm -hmm. is finally for the first time being listened to and acknowledged and Mm -hmm. taken as factual evidence in the non-indigenous court settings and that is a huge change um, from where we were. And I think, you know, it's actually really interesting because in the um, coastal gas link decision, which was the injunction decision that, uh, Shayla, you have most likely heard about, mm-hmm. where uh, the RCMP was ordered to go in and remove individuals um, from uh, the Unistotan camp and to mm-hmm. arrest them, Uh Justice Church was the name of the British Columbia Supreme Court judge who issued that decision and this idea that uh, she wrote about Indigenous law is not, um, a re- it was a reality or something that can be actually factually relied upon until it's adopted uh, somehow within um, common law tradition mm-hmm. is actually, when you take a look at the Supreme Court jurisprudence, it, that's mm-hmm. not in fact correct at all. Um, So, you know, it would have been really interesting um, to have seen that injunction decision um, argued at the Court of Appeal and then, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada, because I am sure um, that there would have been some choice words for, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for the court to say about how that was interpreted, because certainly... Um, Indigenous law uh, should not be regarded that way uh, in terms of how it interacts with Mm -hmm. uh, non-Indigenous
1: law. Well, that brings me to my next question is how can a legal colonial mindset prevent us from building relationships and education? This is from one of my followers.
0: So when the legal system approaches Indigenous rights governance laws as being something that needs to be accommodated or something that needs to be tolerated or uh, something that needs to somehow be subsumed into the colonial uh, legal environment Uh, Mm -hmm. where it's still this type of just total erasure of who Indigenous people are. And, you know, if we can just um, chip away at who they fundamentally are as sovereign nations bit by bit um, and then consume it, you know, within our own systems, um, then I think that that is the type of mindset Uh, that leads to um, a serious lack of trust Mm -hmm. uh, within Indigenous communities because you're not approaching it uh, from this frame of mind where you have a system and I have a system. And, you know, we both made commitment, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to live here in parallel, but never to Threaten each other's way of being. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly, that, you know, certainly the um, non Indigenous colonial system has not followed up on their end of that commitment. And that I think has led um, many Indigenous communities to be very wary of continuing on that path of building trust, of building relationships, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even pursuing you know the education of the non-indigenous public um i know that a lot of indigenous people are have been faced with so many stereotypes for so long totally, totally. that you know it takes so much effort to a guard yourself from those stereotypes but then because of this process of reconcil- reconciliation or because um you know, people are reading about the horrors, the, the true horrors of the residential school, all of a sudden, you know, people may be more interested, they want to learn more, and they're expecting that you be um, providing them with all yeah. of this information. And I don't know necessarily that that is a mantle that you have to take on. And I think it's totally. a choice to do totally. that. But it should never be a requirement.
1: Totally. I'm learning that right now. And I think, yeah, sometimes you're put on a pedestal and you feel like a call to, but then you're, you get burnt out. And I'm at this point in my life where it's like, I can talk about history. I love history. It provides us the foundation, but I also want to visualize a new future. And I think you touched on a really good point of, you know, a lot of indigenous people have troubles trusting um, these systems that are put in place uh, by colonization one of them being you know the healthcare system i have a hard time trusting just because of my history and also the history that's happened here um to indigenous people at the hands of the healthcare system and the racism and the stereotypes and the other one is the child welfare system um you know the residential school being being given a new name of the child welfare system here in canada Um, And that being largely represented by indigenous uh, children. And then you look at the federal prison system and it's made up largely of indigenous men. And so I think sometimes for me, it's hard to even trust like the law. And so I think on a basic level, what would your advice be for maybe an indigenous person that comes interference with the law and, you know, feels like their life is at risk? Like, what would your advice be
0: Uh, So when we talk about life at risk, I mean, um, we're also coming from the perspective where children are our life, right? Mm -hmm. So I think defining the system of law that you're encountering is the first part. Is it a criminal um, system that you are becoming... Uh, enmeshed in Meshden, or is it the child welfare system uh, that mm-hmm. you're becoming involved in? so which which one of those systems would you like me to start with?
1: Uh, I will start with the prison system.
0: So the prison system, absolutely. I think I definitely agree with what you said about it becoming um, a new type of residential school um, that we see. We see a lot of interconnectedness between, it's called a pipeline, right, of Mm. um, young Indigenous children being a first apprehended and brought into care growing up in the child welfare system and uh, a direct line straight through to involvement in the criminal justice system Mm. and then ultimately resulting in incarceration Mm -hmm. um, within the prison system. So, as a parent of a child involved in the welfare system, I would give very different advice than the person who is at that point in their life where they have become involved in um, it from a young age, and is and they're now in prison.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and one of the scariest parts, I think, of prison is the fact it's in and of itself; it is a control mechanism. Mm-hmm. The um, prison system is all about um, making sure that you are kept away from the community you came mm-hmm. from or the community that you are living in, um, and it basically tells individuals uh, who have been sentenced, inmates, that you are somehow undeserving um, to be to continue living
1: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. within
0: that community, and so it is another means of making sure that we are segregated uh, from support systems, from healing, um, from our community, our families, and then placed into institutions where the reality of the vast majority of federal institutions um, is that Indigenous people are screened uh, not for minimal security. Uh, We are overwhelmingly screened for um, medium or maximum security, which means that there is less access to cultural programming. There is Mm. less access to elders, um, to anything that keeps us in touch with who we are as Indigenous people. We essentially become um, an inmate number.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And that is the ultimate sense of state control, in, mm-hmm. in my opinion
1: well it's kind of like weren't they given numbers too like well we're still given numbers with our uh, status cards oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely
0: the only difference is is that to go to prison you don't need to be indian status
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean so when we talk about these things it's hard not to like feel hopeless in and in a way, because we see how corrupt the system is. And so are there ways like what's currently shifting, if anything, within these systems? And how do we give Indigenous people um, the right to even just like survive and to live and to not have to worry about all these um, barriers that are put up against us? Do you see sh- systems starting to shift or is there something that we can do as people to make the shift happen?
0: I think it's really interesting because what I see more and more happening is that um, non-Indigenous systems of control, like the child welfare system, like the criminal justice system, is being utilized um, by the state, uh, giving a little bit of power or control over to First Nations communities Um, And I think we touched on this briefly um, in part one, is that by giving them just a little bit of power or control um, and then framing it as an Indigenous entity or an Indigenous institution that still have all the same rules and are built on all those same um, ideologies of power um, that the non-Indigenous institutions are, are you are you really making um, the situation any better? And so mm. one, you know, something that comes to mind uh, is the number of uh, child welfare, Indigenous child welfare organizations
1: mm-hmm. there
0: are across uh, Canada. Um, the number of uh, Indigenous um, policing, Indigenous mm-hmm. policing Um, And so I think it's important for me to say up front that while I'm not saying that there aren't aspects of our culture that these agencies contain that make them better Mm
1: -hmm. than
0: if they didn't have those aspects. I do have to question as to whether or not putting this label of indigenous in front of it. Which to me signifies that it comes from inherent customs, traditions, um, where we didn't have, uh, quite frankly, policing, what it looks like in the modern day. Mm -hmm. Our policing didn't have that. Um, We had, you know, very different systems, you know, related to uh, specific roles and responsibilities of our clans, uh, with specific duties, um, the peacekeeping function, uh, certainly not walking around with guns, um, mm-hmm. weapons that can seriously harm you and handcuffs. Um, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, Very,
0: very different systems. And yet somehow when you put this word indigenous in front of policing, <laughs> you know, it's... you're led to believe that this is um, something that our First Nations have uh, created. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's so- it's
1: not. It's like, it feels like cognitive dissonance in a way. Um, I saw a Coast Salish painting on a cop car and it just felt like very, I don't know, like very, yeah, like cognitive dissonance, like the two didn't go together. Um, is that kind of what you're saying?
0: Exactly, exactly. And I think that one of the concerns that I have is that It certainly lulls communities into Mm -hmm. complacency um, where they think that, oh, okay, now that we have our own First Nations child uh, welfare society or because we have our own First Nations policing, that somehow this fight to take back what is truly ours and the right to exercise it under Section 35 um, is going to be lost. And that I think is almost what the state depends on. It's it's what it's relying on at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Well, it feels like a lot of like performative activism and, um, like there's a lot of talk and there's never really action. I feel like we've been talking about what indigenous community needs for years, um, with the truth and reconciliation report, uh, with the calls to action. And so what type of law movement, is needed to see justice for missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls in the two-spirit crisis uh, and residential school survivors?
0: I think that if we are going to make any type of significant headway in addressing these problems, um, it needs to be with the fundamental recognition that there is a lot of healing in our communities that needs Mm -hmm. to be done. And that healing, as Indigenous people, we need to recognize is not going to happen um, from others. It's not going to come from anyone except for us. Um, We need to uh, heal, help each other heal in ways that only we can.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Having said that, though, there are always going to be... um, People who are predatory um, in, you know, a very non-Indigenous setting, very much urban settings, very much um, people who, and we've seen this with um, organizations that, non-Indigenous organizations that have come into reserve communities to offer programming and services. um, And then a lot of abuse has resulted from that. Um, So it's being recognizing that indigenous people can't always isolate themselves from the rest of the world. There will be those instances in the future where there, there occurs harms and violence. And when that happens and um, we have victims, Mm -hmm. then they deserve to have all of the um, steps performed and all of the actions taken um, to ensure that the police are doing a proper job in the investigation mm-hmm. of um, what has happened, um, that racism and discrimination uh, stays out of the way that Indigenous people are treated within um, that system. Uh, we, have, we need to make sure that we're holding people, as you said, in the healthcare system accountable Uh, For when we go get help, Um, oftentimes as people who are victims of abuse um, and serious assaults physically, sexually, um, we always think of how poorly they're treated by the criminal justice system and the police. Mm -hmm. um, And we forget sometimes how poorly they're treated by the very people who are supposed to heal us in Mm -hmm. the first instance physically, which are those hospitals um, those doctors, those nurses, Mm -hmm. um, which tend to those immediate physical affects and how detrimental, um, racism is within those environments.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've witnessed it, um, well from myself and also from my brothers. And so it really, um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really have any faith in the police or also um, some of the healthcare systems out in Alberta. But I'm curious to know. There's a lot of talk around, you know, defunding the police. And uh, do you think this is possible, attainable? Do you think that we should defund the police? What are your thoughts around that? Absolutely. <laughs> i'm like are you allowed to talk about that
0: no a huge supporter <laughs> i would give that five out of five stars <laughs> sweet oh um, but having said that you know i think um if we're talking about defunding the police, we actually need to take a look at a breakdown of where does that funding go for Mm -hmm. police? Mm -hmm. And it's not going towards how to mitigate situations where the person is in mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not going to situations where how do we deescalate violence. Mm -hmm. It's not going to situations Um, that are mostly built on community as this relationship building and uh, relationships with the community Um, it's not going to how do we make our police officers not racist Mm -hmm. that's not where this funding is going to it's going to uh weaponry arsenal um, it's going to increase uh, policing presence um, of people who are armed with all of the above. Like that is where so much of that funding goes to. And so when we talk about defund the police, yes, let's stop equipping them with weapons that can kill, and let's start putting that funding back into um, some amazing initiatives. Um, Like teaming up with um, mental health nurses, teaming up with mental health organizations, really addressing um, the areas that we see the most harm when police interact with Indigenous people. Where does the most harms occur? Mm -hmm. And then putting the money towards that.
1: Yeah, well, you see it throughout history of uh, there's been so many Indigenous people that have been harmed at the hands of the police and a lot of them failed to get justice within the system and so i now we're finally able to hire lawyers but i guess we talked a little bit about it at the beginning of knowing our rights um as an individual as an indigenous person through section uh 35 i believe you said it was is it mm-hmm. section 35 yeah. and so if someone were to con- come into contact with the police um you know we're given advice of like you know just show them your drivers right away or show them your status card? Do you have any tangible actions that you would advise like an Indigenous person if they were to get into a situation with a police officer?
0: Yes. So there is um, a difference between our inherent um, rights that have been constitutionalized under Section 35, which is our treaty rights, our... um, Um, rights on the land, and then our rights to the land. Mm -hmm. Um, But another part of that constitution is the Charter, right, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and that is applicable to everybody. Um, And that is when it comes to uh, policing, it's actually very interesting, because if you're stopped on the street, um, and police approach you, um, yes, there are um, rules with respect to provision of identification. Um, you know, obviously, my advice to clients is always, there is not a requirement to offer more information than necessary, but to keep and guard your safety um, being, you know, polite, being respectful. Um, you have a right to ask for badge numbers. You have a right to ask for names. Um, you have a right, there is a right to record. Um, so if you are in a community and you see, uh, things going down, that you know are going to lead to violence or have already gotten there. Mm -hmm. Um, There is, you know, we would not have some of the most horrific scenes of abuse that we've seen from police officers over the last year or two um, have come from bystanders who are left with a feeling of helplessness Mm. because of not being able to intervene knowing that police officers have guns and can use force. Um, but media is in and of itself a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so recording, making notes, um, making complaints, those are all things that we can do to ensure that not only your personal rights are protected, but the, the rights of your community members. And there is actually, um, there are beautiful, and in I would hope that every province and every Indigenous um, legal rights center and every part will have little cards, little wallet cards, um, that you can, and I'm more than happy, um, to send you, uh, an example of it. Sure. Um, that goes over those initial encounters. And it's kind of like a, if this happens, this is what you should do. What Mm -hmm. is that? Choose your own adventure?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: (laughs) if you really want to get into some trouble, ignore this. (laughs) These are your
1: options.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it does, it does help, though, because, you know, I find that it's in in those situations where your adrenaline is running and Um, there is, you know, significant fear or anger towards uh, police, having a quick go-to is very useful. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, um, knowing that you have the right to complain, that you have the right to, that every policing body across this country has an oversight agency Um, that, you know, even if I like to, you know, what I always like to say is that even if very little police complaints ever vindicate the person filing them, Mm. um, you know, unless you do have, you know, that kind of video evidence, um, it becomes a, he said, she said. Right. Um, but regardless of that, even if you are ultimately, um, not successful in that application, the fact that you make that police officer's life hell Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) while that is being investigated and the fact that they have to defend their actions to an oversight body and the fact that they don't just get away with it Mm -hmm. and get to move on to the next day um, as though what happened to you doesn't matter, that is empowering in itself. Mm -hmm. And um, you can just imagine for every negative encounter, um, that our people experience—if every single one of them people complained, mm-hmm. and there was a full complaint system that mm-hmm. had to process that—that that cop had to undergo—you um, know, it's it's putting that pressure, um, putting that pressure on, and making their life miserable um, because of their racism and because of their discrimination.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think it's so important. I think sometimes you feel helpless in those situations because of the power dynamic, and you feel really disempowered. But, you know, this one thing that I think empowers a lot of Indigenous people is the right to defend the land. And so there's this, um, we've all heard about it, the land back movement. Um, I'm curious to know how you would define the land back movement. And do you think it is possible to see in our lifetime?
0: Oh, so this is actually, this is concerning one of the um, files that I'm working on now. Aboriginal Legal Services is um, requesting leave to intervene in um, the 1492 Land Back Lane Mm -hmm. um, injunction case where um, Six Nations of the Grand River um, members, community members, uh, set up a camp. On land that was going to be developed, um, knowing that this was part of the Haldeman Tract, which um, there has been land claims and uh, in place for decades at this point. Um, there are um, issues with respect to the superior courts in Canada um, giving injunctions and granting injunctions um, to private parties who want to develop or uh, mine or explore um, the resources of lands that we've been entrusted uh, with to take care of Mm -hmm. traditionally. And so when it comes to a situation like that, and you know that um, if an injunction is granted uh, against the Indigenous land defenders... Um, and they have set up camp, they have settled there, they're not letting um, that machinery in, they're not letting this settlement occur, Um, and then injunctions granted. The consequence of not following through um, on the terms of that injunction and removing yourself uh, from that space is that you will have charges, um, most likely criminal or civil contempt of court mm. charges that will be brought down on you. And that is, there are so many issues mm-hmm. with that. Uh, when you consider that, you know, the direction of the Supreme Court of Canada to the Crown, to the state, has been always uh, negotiate, you um, with the purpose of reconciliation, um, disputes, um, section 35 disputes, which include the land title or rights on the land, um, need to be resolved. Uh, the best forum for their resolution is not in a courtroom. Mm. Um, it's to come to, uh, an agreement and, you know, the problem is The state doesn't, the the land claims tribunal process has how many, um, you know, hundreds of claims under it. The average length of time, I think, is eight years for the smallest of claims. Um, It is such a slow moving beast that... Ultimately, what happens is that the very rights that Indigenous people are trying to protect are getting destroyed and extinguished literally,
1: yeah. um,
0: by injunctions um, that allow the private interest to come through before we are ever given an opportunity um, to actually have our day in court, if that's what it comes down to. And so there are just such serious consequences um, for Indigenous people, for Indigenous defenders. Um, and the, my challenge, um, if if I'm permitted to make it in the court, my challenge will definitely be um, through every stage of that process, where before a superior court uh, grants an injunction, which is supposed to be an extraordinary remedy. Um, then what do you need to consider before making, um, that order? And in my position, I don't think if this is an assertion of section 35 rights, um, I, if I was a superior court judge, there would certainly be uh, declining of making, um, that relief. I would, you know, wait until trial, mm-hmm. you know, because the problem is that once those third party interests get in there, Everything that we're trying to protect and trying to keep safe is going to be destroyed by the time the matter actually goes through court, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and I think people fail to understand, like, this is our livelihood and, like, everything that we're trying to protect is needed for humanity. Um, This one follower asks, how can law be used to shift Crown land parks into Indigenous lands for stewardship? Like if our reserves are less than 2% land, how do we shift this to 50% of lands for the nations? But what I'm hearing is it's like, there's a lot going on.
0: Yes. And I and I think it starts, I mean, I think it starts with a, those treaties and the lands that were supposed to be a set aside uh, for indigenous nations. Um, there is the uh, filing of a land claim with, and like I said to you, it's, it's not a good system in terms of either haste or efficiency in terms of resolution of these claims. And so part of that issue is that if the Crown could get it together, And if they could um, develop a process whereby these were resolved, um, and an agreement was reached, where perhaps for some of the land that was improperly settled on, um, you know, jurisprudence has, case law has told us, they're not going to force entire cities, right, of non-Indigenous people, mm -hmm. to vacate lands, Um, but there will be compensation right that will be provided in addition to land for other areas right that they may be also claiming there is also a part a really interesting provision that has been uh integrated into a lot of treaties that have been um decided post 1982 and are actually frequently used in places like new zealand as well um is the right of first refusal Um, where in the alternative for the land that has already been settled and there are already cities or towns or wherever, um, the money that is used to compensate uh, for the fact that the crown was in the wrong, um, that money can be utilized towards uh, purchasing um, or having the option to purchase um, crown land that is either Mm. available currently or if in the future, the First Nation, um, the crown decides to sell land uh, that previously it didn't want to, uh, decides to sell it, then you'll be given the right of first refusal. So you can choose to either buy it um, or to not buy it.
1: Mm. And so
0: it's interesting in this way that we can fashion um, agreements. And this is why this process of negotiating and having um, our rights advocated for is this is how we we go from having, you know, 2% of land to taking control over how do we manage our compensation? What do we put the monies towards? Um, in addition to, you know, not if the majority of land that we claim should be Ours is not, has not been settled. It's just crown land and is used for natural resource extraction. Um, And so, in instances like that, absolutely we should be advocating uh, for that land to be returned to our stewardship. Um, Absolutely. But then, you know, for those places that we can't just be given back because they are settled, um, then they should be um, monetarily compensated. And Mm. we should have within our own governments systems where our community is able to decide and determine how we utilize that compensation to make sure that we can continue to add um, to our land, um, to our resources, to ensure our sustainability into the future.
1: Well, that was going to be on my next question. Um, I don't know if we touched on this the last time I talked to you, but Indigenous futurism, if you could imagine our future, what do you hope for uh, when it comes to Indigenous futurism? What? Do, how can you define it in your own words?
0: I think we did like briefly touch on it, but in this like specific arena of resolution of rights and land, um, I think this definitely touches on this idea that I have of um, this no more land claims with the government, <laughs> where somehow we have come out on the other end um, and have made sure to protect and secure our rights through the process so that we don't have to do this all over again in future mm-hmm. generations. So that, you know, the decisions and the agreements um, that we reach with the crown. See us and our our populations, our communities um, being given the amount of resources we need to sustain mm-hmm. ourselves. Because the difference between indigenous communities and what our traditional teachings and customs is that um, there's a there's a balance, right, and a harmony mm-hmm. that we live in where this idea of constantly needing more land, you know, that has led to, you know, taking over of countries, exploitation of, you know, natural resources, and it's capitalism in and of itself as being this ever-hungry beast. Mm -hmm. Um, Not having and adopting those specific ways of structuring ourselves, but instead moving to a futurism where we can have time and space to bring back, relearn um, our traditional ways uh, for not just a few select people in our communities, but for that should be offered to every child um, in our community. And then to have the relationship with the land and the the amount of land that we need and require and should, by right, um, have stewardship of um, to be able to exercise those teachings, uh, and to be able to exercise that caretaking um, that we that we to, for our medicines, um, yeah. so that we have those spaces to gather the medicines, so that we have everything. The land has everything we need, but we need enough of it um, to be able to pr- practice traditionally what we what we knew was going to keep us alive and to keep us healthy. Um, mm-hmm. that is, that to me is where I see indigenous futurism.
1: Well, it's literally like going back to the land, like the land back movement can have so many meanings and one is returning to source. It's returning back to mother earth and father sky. And I think that's where the true healing takes place. And that's the same place where like the revolution will take place and you're doing so much amazing work and I've learned so much from you. Uh, what has been quickly one of your highlights of your entire career and then one of the challenges i feel like you should start with the challenges and then we'll, <laughs> and then we'll do with the we'll end on the good note <laughs> uh,
0: i think i think one of my biggest challenges has been to um not be so frustrated with mm. <laughs> with what you see um as coming from sometimes You know, the greatest legal minds where you see decisions that have been written or you see um, decisions that come out of courts and you think to yourself, how can I possibly um, understand how you're so bright or so you're supposed Mm -hmm. to be? the most knowledgeable, like the carriers. I mean, a judge is supposed to be the carrier of non-Indigenous law. That's how we would understand that person to be. And Mm -hmm. yet, to be so blind to everything that's Mm -hmm. going on around them, I think that that is one of my greatest challenges. And also, you know, why do the work? Um, So I guess guess that leads me nicely as a good segue into... (laughs) The final part of why it is, I think it's important to do this work and for more people who are Indigenous to practice um, in these non-Indigenous arenas um, because of the fact that it allows you uh, for those brief moments where you're before the court to take off that blindfold um, that that court is wearing um, Mm. and for them to see um, through your submissions what the real what the true reality is for indigenous people for our own systems for our way of life and how we see the world around us and we have to remember that people who are indigenous and are privileged enough um to have grown up in those teachings it's mm-hmm. so foreign right mm-hmm. it's so foreign to what non-indigenous people experience and so the opportunity to be able to show the beauty of my culture and to show the importance of it, um, for the future of survival for every, all of us, um, is really, is really where I feel like I'm making a contribution.
1: Mm-hmm. And then like in times where you are feeling like overwhelmed or lethargic or just like uninspired, what are the tools to allow you to reclaim your power and reclaim your own energetic sovereignty?
0: Definitely. I think that talking, um, for me, it's talking to those matriarchs. (laughs) Mm, Um, if you want to, um, find what seem to be just impenetrable depths of strength and resilience, it's truly in the women, um, in our communities and whether or not it's, um, I need a shoulder to, you know, shed some tears on or whether or not I need, you know, a good shake. <laughs> <laughs> good
1: <wake> um, up. <laughs> it
0: seems it seems the grandmothers, the aunties, um, they they know uh, what you need at the time and are more than happy to give it to you. Uh, totally. So that's where I see my renewal of energy coming from Um, because those teachings are irreplaceable.
1: Well, that brings me to my last and final question of what does the word matriarch mean to you and who are matriarchs that you are currently inspired by?
0: Matriarch to me means that they are, um, for me, they're the knowers, um, and the strength they embody, um, the love, the discipline, the power, the vulnerability, um, and they carry it all so well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, is is the beauty of matriarchs and about the societies that we live in um, that are headed by these people who make the plus, the minus, each side, each end of the spectrum. They embody all of it, and they make... Um, they make sure that it's, it's inclusive. It's an inclusive space Mm. where you are understood because it's all known. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, um, that's the, the wisdom I think that carries us forward.
1: Mm We're in the era of like matriarchs rising everywhere. I'm continuously inspired by so many women um in our nations, uh, throughout Turtle Island that are doing incredible work and continue to do the work in a system that has sought to suppress our voice. And so I really admire you and all the work that you're doing. And I know even one of your colleagues, I believe, she's like, I'm so excited for this episode. That's my boss. <laughs> So I'm sure you're a matriarch in a lot of people's eyes. Uh, Thank you so much. Hi, hi, Caitlin, for sharing your time, your wisdom, your energy. I'll put a few of the resources in the link below. And yeah, thank you so much.
0: Miigwech for having me.
1: I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at H at Movement, And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and write where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound Engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and Production Support,
0: Claire Miglionico. Marketing and Digital Growth, Kayla Gillis. And Partnerships, Natalie Hope.